0: Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we are talking about some pretty serious situations that have occurred the world over. We're talking about heartbroken mothers. And yes, I am talking about what happens to people when they kill needlessly, and we've seen that recently in the U.S. Also going to be talking about vulvo vaginal atrophy or genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Treating it will change your life. And with Dr. Tommy Mitchell, we're going to be talking about postpartum depression. And also, do studies show that the kinder you are that can actually treat your depression? Tune in. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now.
1: And now, Maureen's Health Headline.
0: You have heard his voice before. He does tremendous work in educating men and women, and they, about anger management. It's a big problem in this world. And I have invited Alistair Moose of Moose Anger Management to come on and talk about the very shocking situation that occurred in Memphis, Tennessee this week. Good evening, Alistair. How are you?
1: I'm good, thanks. Nice, nice to be here.
0: Yeah, lovely to have you. Thank you so much for talking about this just very tragic situation that occurred mm-hmm. in Memphis, Tennessee this week. I mean, it's just sho- shocking. A young man, Tyree Nichols, was hospitalized in critical condition. He died three day- days later after suffering fatal injuries after police kicked punched and used a baton baton to beat him because they said he was driving recklessly, although there allegedly doesn't appear to be any evidence to support that. Something that we've heard his mother speak out this week and something that she said that I, I can certainly, I can't really get the picture out of my head. It's so distressing because I've seen it. I have seen traumatic head injuries when people are kicked in the head and she said his head was blown up uh, she said like a watermelon or a basketball and it's just she's absolutely correct on top of that, as a medical professional, you understand that the brain swelling occurs, there's herniation of the brain stem that leads to brain death. I mean just just understanding just how horrific this crime was and that the five officers who have been charged are facing sixty years. In prison, potentially, each one of them. And there are likely going to be more arrests. But the reason I've asked you to come on the program is how does this get to this place? How do people go from pulling somebody over to absolute losing it, just losing control, repeatedly kicking? And just, I, I just, I don't, is it anger unleashed? Just I, don't, I I just don't understand it. I'm hoping you can help me and the listeners as well.
1: Well, yeah, and that's a lot more than anger. Um, obviously, that's taking us to a place where we act in a way that's inhuman.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And one of the things that I think about with the police officers well two two things one is, if there was only one police officer, uh-huh. none of that would have happened, but there's there's five. And at some level, they feed off each other. And my guess is that if you look in the, the history of those police officers, there's probably, and this doesn't excuse anything, there's probably mm-hmm. some really bad events that there happened in their lives because they were so triggered in that moment that they dehumanized Tyree but in doing so, they dehumanize themselves because they lose all connection with their humanity, their heart, you know, even their ability to really think through what they're doing. And it's like they're acting as if they're under attack when clearly there's no threat whatsoever. But the energy within all five of them seems to just rise them up, like when there's a group People in a group will do things that they would never do if they were alone and that's and that's part of it, but I think on a bigger level, in police departments all over north america there's a there's an increase in violence and an increase in violence you know all across the states with all, all of the mass shootings and I think people are really on edge, and the more on edge people are before they even get to that kind of thing, the more likely they are to lose it. But it's really extreme what they did. And I, and I wish it was just a one-off or really rare, but unfortunately it happens all the time. And the what states. I
0: don't understand is how somebody goes from zero to 180 in that amount of time. And, and I'm not just talking about those police officers. I'm talking about people who have emotion dysregulation, who Mm -hmm. cannot, who get so angry, who get so upset that, that it leads to what happened with these five disgraced officers. Um, How they just completely lost hold of themselves. As you say, this was the most inhumane thing that that one could ever imagine. You could never imagine that that this would happen. And and I mean, I, I think about them going home to their spouses and to think that they, because they have, they're, they've been released on bail as I understand. They've lost their jobs. Yeah. They've been shamed, I mean, publicly, massively shamed. And, and so they should. I mean, a mother and a family has lost their son and a son has lost his father. Um, mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the complacency of the paramedics is what you see on the um, footage, the body cam footage and the uh, footage of the um, lamppost, um, that they turned up to this and saw this and didn't do anything to help this gentleman, Tyree Nichols. Mm-hmm. and And so there is not even outrage at what are you guys doing i mean so that that's the they had the opposite effect Uh, you know reaction no reaction they just kind of stood around thinking treating this person like an animal i mean it was and so what is actually worse actually worse than an animal hmm Yeah. Yeah. Worse than an animal because we do treat animals better than we treat human beings in this country. We pay dog walkers more than we pay people who look after uh, individuals in long-term care facilities. We pay them three times as much as we pay mm-hmm. people to look after our loved ones. Yes, you're mm-hmm. absolutely correct. It was worse than animals, but they didn't react well, at so, all. So you can
1: see the absolute cynicism um, among the, you know, the, the the people that are supposed to be looking after Tyree's health. And, uh-huh. I, and when I look at that, I think, you know, because I've worked with all sorts of doctors and nurses, and sometimes they, they come our way and, and their goal becomes to reconnect with compassion. What brought them to the work in the first place, connection with other people's humanity. And you can see that that's completely missing in this, and it's likely been missing, you know, among the police officers to a huge degree. If the police officers actually had good mental health, this would not happen. All right. So, so their mental health is not being looked after at all. Often in in police, they're you know, really old school mentality where you just don't look after mental health. And, and is this
0: the old boys' network, the old boys' club? Because, as far as I understood, they were kind of in their 40s. These weren't. Well, older.
1: actually, I, what, what, I, what I read was that, you know, most of them hadn't worked there that long. Like six uh-huh. years, I think, was the longest.
0: Right. And Weren't they part of an elite organization that a, a
1: couple of them were in, gangs. in some elite organization that uh-huh. well, it doesn't look like they have much training in you know, in compassion or anything like that because they were or, all just, hu- yeah.
0: yeah. Oh sorry, or humanity. Now now we had the murder of George Floyd back in May on May twenty fifth, twenty twenty. would would police officers not think I wouldn't want that, yeah, I wouldn't want to be that police officer who, who murdered him, who put his foot on his neck for nine minutes. Do they, does this not, is there a disconnection here, or is the mental health issues so significant of these police officers that that just doesn't get absorbed at all?
1: Well, and when I have worked with police officers
0: that have worked for
1: many years, they've often seen so many horrific things that their body just holds so much trauma that they have trouble really operating well in relationships uh, in their life. And while this group hadn't been there that long, you know, it, it clearly seems like they're in a culture where people's humanity is not important. And, you know, That seems to be the case, unfortunately, certainly all across the states and certainly at some level in in Canada. And they need to be connecting with being uh, supportive of the people that they pull over rather than it it seems like they pull somebody over and they're ready to fight. Uh It it doesn't make any sense. He was not posing a threat even when he was in the car.
0: Like he he wasn't a threat. It did not appear that he was a threat at all, it and did
1: not that's... appear, but they acted as if he was, you know, something so extreme. It's really hard to make sense of just watching the video because their response seems so over the top, and 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 through the whole thing, and it just makes me think. Well, either. They're all really traumatized and disconnected. But that seems to be the case for you know, so many of them. That either they don't have any training how to you know look after their own mental health, and then they can't look after anybody else's.
0: My guest is Alistair Moose. He has Moose Anger Management, does tremendous work with helping people manage their anger. Alistair, um, I would love to have you on for hours here. We don't have that much time, but um, how can people <laughs> deal with their anger? I mean, anger ruins relationships. We've seen that anger kills people. We've seen that people lose control and they, they don't even realize how can they be helped?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, anger isn't by itself a bad thing. We can do something healthy or unhealthy with it, but when we react to that anger, often when people come call call us something pretty bad has happened and usually before that call, for a period of time they haven't been sleeping, maybe they haven't been looking after themselves or they've been drinking too much, there's been stressed, they've had maybe anxiety, maybe somebody died recently or they've moved or some other big stressor. And usually there's some blow up. All of it ends up leaving them feeling all this tension in their body, they, they're elevated, and then they blow up. And then they come to us and because they feel terrible and they want to repair the damage they've done. And what usually helps, first of all, is just taking a pause and breathing deeply and getting uh, some perspective. Sometimes we just need some time we need to breathe deep into our bodies because we get lost in our head with the anxiety. And then all of a sudden, everything is the end of the world. Whereas what what we need to do is to be able to take take the time to slow everything down. So sometimes we just do simple breathing exercises with people where, you know, and I tell my groups of guys, I say, so first thing you do is shut your mouth. That's usually a good thing because it means you, you're more likely to listen and you breathe through your nose deep into your abdomen and you breathe in and out to the count of six. And that triggers the relaxation response in the body and it brings your heart rate down. And we need to slow things down and get our feet back on the ground before we can actually think straight. Because like those cops, maybe not quite to that extreme, we all escalate and we lose perspective at times and so a lot of the work we do is connecting with the different things people can do to bring their their heart rate down and to step back and gain perspective and it's only then that we can really connect and look behind the anger and see what's there which usually is something in the in the present and often it's connected to something uh, in more in our distant past or in our childhood, um, but every everybody's different, and we need to look behind all of this stuff and and breathe deep and reconnect with what actually matters to us, what our core and values are. We only have are. about a
0: we only have about a minute left, but um, is it dealing with the trauma that one experiences as a child that will help people to? process and manage their anger so that it's healthy anger that they express?
1: Well, if we only deal with the stuff in the present, it, it often just keeps on coming back over and over again because we're trying to fix it intellectually. And we need to step back and, and, and feel what happens in our body and connect with where that started. So often we're talking about things that happened when somebody was six because when they react, they're acting like a six or a four-year-old. And Mm -hmm. so it's connecting with what that's like in us today. We're not really going back in time. We're connecting with with what's in our body today and figuring out what that part of us needs, which usually is to be seen, to be heard, to be loved, to be
0: safe. Right, and we're up against the clock. Speaking of time, I'm sorry. How can people get in touch with you, Alistair?
1: Uh, the website is angerman.online or at Moose Anger Management on Instagram or other social media
0: we talk about a lot of uncomfortable subjects. And, you know, when people are uncomfortable talking about a subject, they become ashamed or they create clever euphemisms to avoid having to say those actual words. And, you know, things like the change doesn't actually say what it is, nor does the big M. And, and also something that's very important, especially during that time and other times of life is the word the GG. What are we talking about? We're talking about menopause. Although 5 million Canadian women will go through menopause by the year 2025, many women are ill-informed and they're still not talking. They're not talking about it and they're not even comfortable talking about it. So keeping mum on menopause can negatively impact one's quality of life and their health. And after all, your health is your wealth. In particular, I want to focus on the vagina. I'm going to tell you about a patient that I had this week. But after menopause, Women experience changes in and around the vagina in addition to other symptoms, but the changes in and around the vagina can actually lead to moderate or severe sexual pain that can impact a woman's sexual satisfaction. It also can impact a relationship. This is a a subject of which I am incredibly passionate about being a nurse Continence Advisor, sexual health educator. So I talk about this all the time with my patients menopause including the lesser known symptoms of menopause like vaginal dryness sexual pain and sexual satisfaction are subjects that we need to address we can no longer remain mum on those so I've invited a select group of patients in the past and and now Um, They've shared their stories. You can go back to um, listen on iTunes or Google Play to hear those interviews because I felt it was important that women share their own stories. And I've also invited some esteemed women's healthcare professionals to educate women and men about this subject because I do actually receive notes from men as well that they need to understand it also. So I'm delighted to invite my next guest to speak with you, Dr. Christine Pame is a general practitioner in Midtown Toronto. She is well-versed in preventive care with a focus on women's health. And I just wanna tell you a little bit about Dr. Pame. The patients say things like, Dr. Pame always goes above and beyond to ensure her patients get the care that they need. She is diligent. And an evidence-based physician, she is the best. Those are just a few things that that uh, patients have said about her, and she joins me on the line right now to educate you, Dr. Pame, Thank you so much for joining the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm so delighted to have you. This is such an important subject to talk about because, you know, with menopause, it's it's hard enough for people to discuss menopause or to raise the subject. You you don't really talk about your night sweats or your hot flashes, but people are familiar with those symptoms. Just this week, I had a patient who was very unfamiliar, and, and it's not just one patient and this week, it's very often women are prescribed a medication for vaginal health. They don't take it, they don't take it for long enough. They feel, they don't even know why they're taking it. So if you wouldn't mind Um, If you Mm -hmm. can tell us, what is vulvovaginal atrophy, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, and what causes vulvovaginal atrophy or genitourinary syndrome of menopause, GSM?
2: Well, Maureen, I think when you use the word uncomfortable in context of uh, patients being uncomfortable talking about these subjects, that's a perfect world. So the genitourinary symptoms of menopause, we call them GSM, It's a subset of a broader set of uh, symptoms that occur during menopause. You mentioned vaginal dryness, pain during sex, but it can also be irritation, itching, bleeding with sexual activity, and symptoms that almost mimic urinary tract infections. So uncomfortable to talk about, perhaps, but the syndrome itself is uncomfortable and really does affect quality of life. They've done plenty of studies across uh, the globe. Uh, In Canada, you know, several women say that this interferes with their sex life, their ability to exercise, you know, they feel ashamed, they feel that there's something wrong. But on the flip side, I think that there's also a sense of, oh, this is the normal part of aging. No need to talk about it. My mother went through it. My grandmother went through it. Akin to painful periods. And the reality is, is that these things can be treated and women don't have to suffer but if we don't talk about it, then we're actually robbing ourselves of treatment and quality of life.
0: Uh, I could not agree with you more. And, you know, something else I wanted to add, you mentioned all of those symptoms associated with um, the, the vagina mm-hmm. and vaginal health at menopause and beyond. Um, you know, the thinning dry vagina, it, it doesn't sound so sexy. It doesn't sound so great. It, it You know, it makes women feel old as well and i think when women feel old they also want to deny sometimes that that aging process and it's such a sensitive subject to go into a physician and to say you know i feel vaginal dryness it's uncomfortable when i ride my bike or um it's decreasing my sexual desire because sex is painful and who wants to do anything when something hurts so as a woman it may be okay to bring up Hot flashes and the, the better-known okay. symptoms of menopause, even heart palpitations or night sweats. But how does a patient bring up the subject of a dry vagina to their general practitioner?
2: You know, I think that's an excellent, um, excellent question. So I'm really lucky. I have a pretty static practice. My patients know me. There's a familiarity. You know, myself, when I'm doing an annual review, I'll ask. These uh, questions to women, you know, starting in their 40s, because menopause doesn't happen suddenly. It's a transition over time. Everybody has a different trajectory time wise. Um, but quite frankly, you know, when a woman comes in and speaks about, I think I have chest pain, you know, I think I have wrist pain, we've somehow made any talk about vaginal symptoms to be this taboo topic. The vagina is an organ, you know, it's an important organ, it does a lot of work. And I think that part of uh, opening up barriers is taking away that stigma. It's not a Pandora's box. You know, it's part of your body. And it's really no different than coming in and having your heart checked, having your lungs checked. And I think if you sort of destigmatize the process, it makes the discussion easier. The other point is, is that, you know, oftentimes patients come and they educate me. And I'm happy about that, Maureen. You know, they bring Uh up things and say, look, I was talking to my friend, etc. So, you know, having a relationship with your physician where you, over time, build a rapport, you know, over time, have your physician understand your body, I think that's part of it, too
0: i couldn't agree with you more it can be so uncomfortable and i'm going to take a stab at this without offending all of the gps across canada but most gps will not ask and and my concern is if we diff- if we consider the different cultures that we have that make up this beautiful country uh this may not be easy to communicate and what do you suggest or um you know a, a woman who's speaking to a male Physician where they might assume this doctor is not going to know anything about my vagina or I'm too embarrassed to say But but let's go with the different cultures. How, how do you suggest? Yeah. Um, we deal with that barrier Well, let's call a spade a spade
2: family doctors in general shy away from this for a number of reasons historically um, I think that starting off saying I feel uncomfortable talking about this, but it's important to me That sets the stage my ears With perca, you know, I take my hand off my computer and look at the patient and say, tell me, right? So I think if you preface your statement saying that you don't feel comfortable, that sort of changes the environment, changes the feel in the office. And quite frankly, unless we start using words like vaginal dryness, pain during sex, once we start practicing and you break that initial fear, it becomes easier. It becomes easier for you. And you can pass on the message to your friends and family. Change happens at grassroots, Marlene, quite a bit. So you know, my suggestion is, is make an appointment and start off with saying, I'm uncomfortable talking about this.
0: My guest is the esteemed and wonderful Dr. Christine Pame. She's an incredible general practitioner in the Toronto area. Patients love her. I think she's amazing, and it's any wonder she deals with preventive health and as well has a focus on women's health. And women's health is important for families, for relationships, and in particular, for the woman herself. We're talking about vulvovaginal atrophy, VVA, or GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Thank you so much, Dr. Pame, for staying with me. Um, The big question here is, you know, you said earlier, if people were listening to the earlier segment, or if you're just tuning in, Dr. Pame mentioned that a lot of women will experience vaginal dryness and they'll just think, uh, oh, this is expected, I'm getting older, I should experience this, sex is over, that's it. But why should we treat vulvovaginal atrophy or VVA or genitourinary syndro- syndrome of menopause, which is the term we refer to it now, because it also can have bladder issues and and other genitourinary symptoms. So why is it that we should treat this condition?
2: Quite frankly, because it changes quality of life. You know, I have patients with feedback, they've come in, they haven't had sex because it's painful, it affects intimacy, relationships. It's also uncomfortable to constantly feel that you have an itchy vagina, you know, perhaps you think you have a urinary tract infection, so if treatments exist, to alleviate these symptoms and you know, uh, going forward, have a woman resume a healthy sexual life, restore a relationship, that's a no-brainer to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Something I wanna bring up, and I see this in my clinical practice, it, you, a woman does not have to be sexual, sexually active in order to treat vulvovaginal atrophy, correct? This is for absolutely. all women.
2: Correct, absolutely. There's no doubt, um, you know, first-line treatments are sort of lifestyle modifications. And engaging in sex to a certain extent does help because it promotes lubrication. But, I mean, the reality is if you're suffering and you're not having sex, the concept of prescribing sexual activity is not going to work. So other things are avoiding irritants, obviously stopping smoking, caffeine to a certain extent. And there's a whole plethora of over-the-counter lubricants, moisturizers, you know, these are all recommended by the SOGC, the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. Pelvic physio, well, just sort of first-line DIY treatments. And generally speaking, you know, they can be part of the treatment, but I don't find that they're enough, and you have to
0: eventually deal with uh, pharmacotherapy. Absolutely. And and I just want to say, I do get a lot of patients who'll say to me, if I ask Mm -hmm. them if they're experiencing vaginal dryness, they'll say, I'm not sexually active, will be their response. But I try to get that message across to women that you do not need to be sexually active to experience vaginal dryness. Um, And and as you had mentioned, there are other symptoms uh, that women experience like bladder symptoms, urgency, irritation, that type of thing. So tell me about the Treatment options, the, the pharmacotherapy for vulvovaginal vaginal atrophy, and these are all by prescription, correct? Correct.
2: So um, when I talk about uh, menopause in general, I talk about the trifecta of hormones. So you have, you know, testosterone androgens. You have uh, estrogen, and you have progesterone. In the case of uh, GSM, you know, we're dealing really with estrogen and uh, testosterone. So first, you know, we've had vaginal. Um, options that are available to target estrogen only, and they come in creams, rings, pills, you name it. Um, you know, those have been around for quite a long time, and, you know, they're, I'd say about, you know, they're effective about 50% of the time with my patients. Uh, they come in different dosage formulations, but definitely prescription. We have two new options available. Uh, one is an intravaginal ovule, uh, and I love the ovules because unlike pills that chase and get stuck, an ovule. is easy to insert, insert in one at bedtime. Uh, the generic name is Prosterone, uh, and it really targets both estrogen and testosterone in a really elegant way. Uh, it uses the cells in the vaginal area, uh, and the cells themselves have an enzyme that converts the medication uh, into an active form. So it's really just local. You don't really have exposure in your entire body to hormones. It's really elegant strategic. And I would like to uh, describe it as targeted. And then we also have a newer oral um, medication uh, that's called osteopenia. It's um, once daily. It's a pill that you take, um, and it uh, targets the vaginal area in a different way through estrogen-modifying receptors.
0: So, you know, really, we have a gamut of pharmacotherapy options that are available. We, we certainly do. And the presterone that you mentioned, or InterRosa, um, is, is that the new kid on the block? Because Asphina's been around for a little bit. Is that right? But only recently in Canada? Yeah. Um, correct. Okay. I mean, the
2: vaginal ones have been around for, or the um, estrogen targeting medications have been around for decades. But um, the newest kid on the block is presterone, Yeah.
0: Uh, Absolutely, and very important. I love advancements in women's health. You know, something that I wanna say about the tablet, I won't go into the name, (laughs) but unfortunately that tablet used to be two and a half times the dose and and it worked fairly effectively for women, but the company in their infinite wisdom, air quotes, uh, decided to reduce (laughs) the dose. It was already low dose and then they decided to reduce the dose and a lot of women have to take that not just twice a week but three four five times a week and that's obviously an in with an increased charge to women i must say um but the you know most important thing is that it doesn't work as effectively as it did at the higher doses and as you mentioned it can chafe and um and also be dry and fall out because you're putting a tablet up against yeah. a, a dry vagina a lot of women find that, that the creams are uh, messy and they worry <laughs> about the their partner um that they would absorb something um as well so what what would you say to um patients to to women who um are experiencing this and and you know how important is treatment and is it something that they just need to take for a few months or is this lifelong therapy
2: I mean, it really depends on the, uh, on the patient. It is long-term therapy and probably lifelong. In some circumstances, you know, I sort of bridge lifestyle changes with these medications. But I mean, the reality is, is the least effective and most expensive medication is the one that you don't take, right? So formulation Mm -hmm. is so important with these, um, and coming up with a scheme, you know, if you are, if you prefer ovules versus creams, that's something to discuss with your family doctor, perhaps you know, you don't want to take a medication every day. Point is, is that we have a myriad of options. I think the biggest
0: challenge is having the discussion and starting that discussion, you know, to learn what's available to you. <clears throat> and, and so that women women can make a choice. Like, you know, understanding the cause sure. of genitourinary syndrome of menopause is both an androgen and estrogen component. And most most therapies, I would say, address the estrogen component, but they don't address that androgen one, but the prasterone that you mentioned does address the androgen uh, component from what I understand. Absolutely, and it sort of sets itself aside from the other options that are available.
2: So it's a wonderful newer option that we have available to uh, to patients. You know, I've certainly prescribed it to about a dozen, um, and I'm just awaiting feedback right now. They... um, you know, they say that people or patients start feeling better at the two week mark. I generally say, you know, I, I'm I'm a little bit more pessimistic when setting up expectations. I say wait four to six weeks. Um, but the other point is is you know provide feedback to your family doctor. It's not just fill a prescription and leave. Go back, have an exam, discuss what's working, and what's not. You know that's excellent medicine when there's feedback and changes accordingly. Uh, and that requires a conversation and. That requires us destigmatizing the whole concept
0: that it's so important and you know we we only have about a minute left but um you know i just i'm very excited about this new treatment option because it's as Mm -hmm. close as you get to mimicking the natural dhea production in a woman's body and it addresses the root cause versus addressing only symptoms and you're not giving more estrogen like you are with you know if it's not working doctors will suggest more estrogen cream or more vaginal tablets this your body decides with intra-rosa your bo- or progesterone. your body decides how much that you need. And it's a local action only, which is, which is amazing. is a local action,
2: yeah. I mean, local action is so key in this case.
0: It, it, and it certainly is. Anyway, thank you so much, Dr. Palme. I really appreciate you coming on the program tonight and educating women about the, the new kid on the block. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk.
0: Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Uh, we're going to be talking about a very important subject right now that can affect women. It can also affect men as well. Um, also going to be talking about kindness, answering your text messages and emails as well. And uh, just going to cover a little back to the bedroom segment how you can actually increase your sexual satisfaction in your relationship. But right now, in order to discuss a very heavy and very troubling and distressing medical condition, mental illness, uh, with me is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. You've heard her voice before. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She empowers professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so they can increase their productivity in the workplace. She's all about leverage-based leadership. She's a speaker, a trainer, and a writing sh- writer. She talks about mental health, burnout prevention, leadership development, and racism is a public health crisis. And right now, we're going to be talking about postpartum depression. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. How are you? I'm well, Marie. Thanks for having me again. You are so welcome. Thank you for joining the program. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's My such your pleasure. contribution is amazing. Um, you know, this is a very tough subject, postpartum depression. It's poorly understood. It can often start in pregnancy as well. Um, it's confusing. Uh, in, people change dramatically. Uh, hormones are um, as I like to say, out of whack. And the birth of a baby can bring on a variety of powerful emotions. We can have excitement and joy to fear and anxiety, but it also can bring on depression. And And we think, you know, we people know that there's baby blues that can occur you know, typically day three after the baby is born. That can include mood swings, crying spells, anxiety, difficulty sleeping. And, and most new moms experience that. But that you know, that might last a couple of weeks. It gets better over time. But some new moms experience a more severe, long lasting form of depression that we call postpartum depression. But it, as I said, it can start in pregnancy. And it's very difficult to understand because seemingly the birth of a baby is the most joyous time of. Um, you know, of our lives. And I had a friend describe it as, um, you know, it was like teenage love. You know, there's there's nothing yeah. all over again. There's nothing like it. And so it's very difficult to understand. Walk us through um, what postpartum depression is.
3: Yeah, postpartum depression is, like you said, more than the blues, which is that adjustment period in the first two to three days to like the first couple weeks after delivery this is more severe and long lasting and it really impacts the quality of life of the mother their family and also you can also expect the men to i will say and just Uh how she responds so it's 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 complicated and you know it's more than just the blues so it's lasting more than two weeks we typically use two weeks as our minimum amount of time we've had these symptoms such as mood swings, anxiety, um, irritability, just withdrawing, feeling hopeless. And, um, but it goes more than that. Like you might have insomnia, which is obviously having a baby can cause insomnia, but there might be inability to sleep, even when you have a chance to sleep, withdrawing, like loss of interest in things that normally would interest you, as we would see in depression, even if it wasn't in the postpartum um, period, just feeling worthless. It's, it's depression, clinical depression, but the key part is it's in that post-delivery period, and it can be up to a year after the birth of the child.
0: Uh-huh. And many people suffer from frequent depression, as you mentioned, and, and psychosis, even suicidal thoughts. Yeah, uh, this very is much so. what, what I want to point out is this is a. I, I think it's one of those uncomfortable subjects too that we don't really talk about the risks I've spoken with women postpartum who you know were afraid to tell anybody that they were having thoughts that they were going to harm their baby yeah uh, th- there's a lot of s- shame around that and and stigma yeah. and it it's also dangerous although many don't act on it some do yeah and it's always it's always incredibly tragic so what is happening in the brain that you would go from having uh, a baby you know anticipating a most joyous time of life to psychosis suicidal thoughts a thought to harm your child or perhaps even kill yourself and bring your children along with you that's a really good question because I, I don't i don't know if we
3: exactly know what exactly turns the trigger per se but there is often, like there's a sudden shift. And I think there's multi-factors that are even outside of um, the brain per se. But yes, individuals who have postpartum psychosis psychosis typically had underlying mental health challenges before. And there also may be triggers as far as um, stressors in their pregnancy or post-delivery, like a traumatic birth. Um, worshiping partner, like situation with their partner, poor support, unwanted pregnancy. Um, and sometimes we don't even know, like there are women who everything quote unquote seems perfect. So I wish I could say there was like a clear cut answer, but it, I'm, I just haven't seen it. I don't know about your clinical experience. It's, it's a topic that people don't want to talk about, but as providers, we have to normalize it and know that this is common. I think the middle ground is actually the the depression piece. I think that's more common than we realize. And normalizing this and being proactive and you know letting your patients know that it's okay to ask for help. I often tell my patients, even before, they, they come in with their new baby, all happy but exhausted. And I'll look at the partner and I'll be like, congratulations to both of you. And I would say straight up, You know, usually it's the woman who's caring, do most of the work. She's just nursing and she's going to need a lot of help. And you know what? You may find that her moods may go up and down. And this is normal. But this is a time that's going to, you know, can test your relationship. But it's also a time to really excel. So I need you to be as supportive as you can. And sometimes as women we may feel shy about asking for help because we see it as a sign of weakness. It It is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. And I encourage the partner if they have friends or family who can help them, ask them. When people say, let me know if we need anything, I'll be like, okay, I'm making a note. What's your specialty? Is it dishes? Is it folding baby gear? Like, I kid you not, like enlist your family and friends. Have your tribe because this is a huge shift and this can bring out so many concerns from um, body image concerns because pregnancy changes a lot of things. Even after you have the baby, you still look pregnant, right? Uh-huh. Like just the finances, the unknown, the lack of sleep, the change in the relationship, the hormonal imbalance. If there's pre-existing anxiety, depression, if there's unresolved traumas, like it's it's a really big issue, and it's something that we need to discuss more. And Marina. I'm, thanks for bringing this topic up um, because I've seen so many people suffer in silence and it
0: needs to and, and something you you mentioned, um, uh, you said the word perfect, and I'm, I can't remember in which context, but it does remind me of perfectionists who yeah, are at a body. little bit higher risk yes. of postpartum depression. Um, I don't know if you heard about the case in, in a small town in Massachusetts uh, where a woman was suffering with postpartum depression and ended up taking the lives of her children as well as injuring herself, um, jumping out the window. And um, she has suffered severe injuries as a result of that. And apparently she had been suffering with postpartum depression for several months and had been in intensive therapy um, five days a week, uh, psychotherapy for five days a week. And It's just unfathomable how a mother, I mean, you understand it. I understand it. A a lot of people have empathy and do understand it, but a lot of people don't understand it because we're horrified when we hear that a a mother has taken the lives of her children. Oftentimes it's, they want, they're having thoughts that they want to kill themselves and then bring their children along with them. But we, we don't, a lot of people don't understand that because we're horrified because it's the exact opposite role that a mom is supposed to have. Um, And in fact, when you look at fathers, it's not quite as horrifying. This is an outdated idea, but they're not considered the, you know, the caring nurturer of the family, as you mentioned, that it's, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot is on, is on the mother, but very, very difficult to understand. And how does one heal? from something like that. And how does the father heal or the, in the family and the siblings and the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents and the friends, um, of a seemingly perfect, you know, ideal, idyllic life, um, to go from that, you know, walking the beach with your children to psychosis, but it's a chemical imbalance that occurs. Correct. And, Triggered by yes, hormone, hormonal shifts. Yes.
3: yes, medications, and you know, so so many people are afraid of "quote unquote" harming the baby if they are taking medications, either in the pregnancy period or postpartum. But we have to look at the risk benefit. In these cases, the benefit of taking medications far outweighs any risk. Right, uh-huh. like it, stories like this should never have happened. But I mean, it's it's a sign that there's obviously. A lot of work that needs to be done to support these families, and when a mother is brave enough to get help, sometimes she needs to be you know it it just needs to be more, but even with our best efforts, people do fall through the cracks but yes, medications are important, and the stigma of medications we need to we need to stop this. Think of it. I I tell my pa- my uh, my mothers and even even for non postpartum depression, just think of it like a vitamin for the brain. Whether it's vitamin D, dopamine, or like serotonin, whatever it is, it's a vitamin. Your brain needs it.
0: Uh-huh. All right. My guest is Doctor Tommy Mitchell. We're talking postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. I just wanted to read an email, Doctor Mitchell, that I received. Uh, Dear Maureen, thank you so much for bringing this subject up. My daughter experienced postpartum psychosis and tried to injure her baby, but fortunately her sister walked in on her while she was in the midst of that, and my daughter broke down and was eventually able to get the help that she needed. This rocked our world for over a year, and we still have effects from this situation. Sincerely. Mm. Well, a mom still suffering. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's one 500, but you really only hear about the ones that make the news, if you will. Yeah. Um, it's postpartum psychosis. You you mentioned uh, medication is important. And, you know, those medications are, they're antipsychotics, right? Yeah. What are some of the other types of medications that are used?
3: Uh, we well, we definitely use antidepressants as well. Um, mm-hmm. We there's non-pharmaceutical things like we off, like with anything we do counseling, therapy, acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Like I still believe in all those things. Eating a healthy diet and then the medications on top. Severe cases, you might even need like um, like ECT or like some others or um, sometimes I actually have ketamine. For extreme uh-huh. cases. We don't have, I don't think we have many centers in Canada, but I don't know, US, they go as far as the dissociative drugs. So it's really case by case up to the physician, psychiatrist specifically, especially ideally one who specializes in this area because
0: it is very niche, I feel. And um, it's important to stay there- on therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very niche in this particular situation of the case in the small town in Massachusetts where the mother, um, took the lives of her three, allegedly took the lives of her three children. Um, Mm. her husband was working from home. She was getting intensive psychotherapy. The Kids were in their various schools. Um, she was left Mm. alone for about 15 or 20 minutes with the children just to quickly run out, um, and run an errand. And in that period of time, you know, allegedly committed these murders and and also jumped out the window, ended up breaking her neck. Um, Is there, when somebody starts to, typically when people are depressed, they don't have the energy to die by suicide. Um, Is this something that when people start to get, start to feel better, it's a bit of a phenomenon? It, it They is. actually it, have the energy to do that. Yeah.
3: Yes, it is. It's like that calm before the storm, and it. If you're not careful, you might think, "Oh, they're getting better. I can, you know, they're not going to harm anybody. They're they're better." And then things like I, this happen. It's so heartbreaking. I think we don't right? even.
0: I don't. I think we don't even talk about enough about the delusions that people experience, the hallucinations that people experience, the uh, mixture of manic mood and low mood, loss of inhibitions, feeling suspicious or fearful or um, restlessness, feeling confused, behaving in a way that's very out of character. And we don't think a mother could ever harm her children. Of course, I am certain that this woman did not want to harm her children, that she was psychotic, And when people are psychotic, they behave in bizarre ways that are incomprehensible. I I, I completely do not hold her responsible and feel terrible for her once her hormones balance out potentially after a year and her mental health improves. And when she realizes the gravity of what happened. It's it's Um, so sad. Oh, it's just so sad. And, And can somebody ever heal from such a tragedy?
3: I don't think anyone, like people talk about, you know, I don't think so. I think that's a scar that is forever there. Like the scar can tighten up and you have your, the wound can tighten you left with a scar. So that scar will be there. I don't care. Like I just, I just don't, it doesn't disappear. That is, that's part of you. Like that's, no, I, I struggle with that one. I just, I think you can definitely move on, find something beautiful from a situation, but to truly, completely say, it doesn't. Nah, it's it's forever there. It's it's so heartbreaking. But it you is know, just they, so it's heartbreaking. so heartbreaking. As a mother, and you know, for that mother, like, for them, they love their children. But the way their mind is, they almost think like they're taking themselves out of misery, or they're so scared that they're gonna like. It, they just,
0: it's so sad, Maureen. Like. Just yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not in their no, right no. mind. And it and no. can be very hard to come to terms with the experience of postpartum and, psychosis as one recovers.
3: Yeah, and the recovery is years, frankly, because even for regu- like just depression on its own, we encourage our patients to stay on the medication for at least a year after resolution, like symptoms, mm-hmm. like you feel amazing, like a exactly. year after yeah, right? absolutely.
0: And listen, we're up against the clock. I'm sorry. I, know, I have I to know. let you go. Thank you so much for having this tough conversation with me. I really appreciate it. And thanks it. for
3: sharing the space. It was really good. Thank
0: you.